Glad you could be here with us. Now, can you hear me? All right. Happy Palm Sunday, First Baptist. Glad you could be here. Uh, I don't know about you, but having come from West Virginia, I found that people have certain expectations of me. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, I was with some folks one time. I was actually in San Diego, and they were about to build a campfire. And they looked at me and said, well, Chad, you're from West Virginia. Would you build that campfire? And then one time, a friend of mine was saying, um, this was in Maryland. He said, Chad, I'm getting ready to hoe some potatoes. Would you give me some directions on how to... Now, I'd never hoed a potato in my life. And I'm guessing that if you're from Wyoming, people have an expectation that you know something about horses and ranching and stuff like that. I don't know that much about horses, and I proved that talking to a friend of mine in Maryland. We were talking about this upcoming fair, uh, fair in St. Mary's County. That was the county we lived in. And one of the events in that fair is a horse pull. They actually have a sled. They hook a horse up to it, and there's a contest to see how far either one horse or a team of horses can, can pull that sled. So when I was talking to him about it, I said, well, I guess the... Uh, I guess the Clydesdales always win that competition. In my mind, that's just sort of the, the biggest, strongest horse out there. And he looked at me, kind of laughed. He said, you really don't know anything about horses, do you? And I said, well, not really. And he said, well, you see, it's the Belgian horses that are actually a lot stronger than the Clydesdales. He said, now, if you're going to have horses pulling a sleigh or something like that, he said, you want to have the Clydesdales because they're pretty and flowy and things like that. But if you've got something really heavy that needs to be pulled, he said, you need to hook it up to a Belgian horse. And the reason I bring that up is because I believe that oftentimes our prayers can look more like a Clydesdale. And here's what I, I mean. Let me illustrate that, that further. Since I've become a pastor, frankly, I, I do a lot of praying. I do a lot of public praying up in front of people. And when I do that, I always fight the temptation to be overly concerned about how you all are hearing and perceiving the prayer that I'm praying. If you pray publicly, maybe you know what I'm talking about. You want to make it flowery. You want to make it poetic. You want to make it impactful instead of just focusing on the God to whom you're praying. Now, in certain situations, I am praying publicly, but I'm awful. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm also oftentimes praying privately with someone. You know, it could be a situation where someone's about to pass away, and I'm, I'm praying with that person. It could be with someone who's just lost a loved one. They want comfort. It could be with someone who's sick, someone whose marriage is on the rocks, uh, someone who is um, praying for a wayward child. And in all of those situations... Not only myself, but the other person as well could care less how flowery and poetic that prayer may be. The only thing they care about is that thing for which they are praying. So if there is a way, if God has given us a prescription for prayer, if he's given us lessons on how to do it, we need to adopt those into our daily prayer life. And that's what we're going to talk about today. How can we pray powerfully. How can we pray powerfully? And today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. We'll start there, but then we'll move our way through the rest of the chapter. And we're journeying with these disciples to Jerusalem. 
Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Now as they approached Jerusalem near Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go to the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, what are you doing, or why are you doing this, say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here soon. So they went and found a colt tied at a door, outside in the street, and untied it. Some people standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying that colt? They replied as Jesus had told them, and the bystanders let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Both those who went ahead and those who, kept, and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! Then Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And after looking around at everything, he went out to Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. You may be seated. This morning, we're going to walk through this, this 11th chapter of Mark. And there's a lot going on. A lot of strange things are happening in this chapter, beginning with this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we're going to see three things. First, we're going to talk about this lack of response that we see in Jerusalem to Christ. And then we'll talk about in a moment in the next set of verses, the lack of prayer at the temple. And then finally, we'll talk about well, how do I pray? And when we talk about how to pray, we'll talk about three main ingredients to powerful prayers. So we'll go through all these today. I want to go back to the text that we just looked at because we're focusing on these events that are leading up to the death and resurrection of Christ. And here in chapter 11, we see this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And on Palm Sunday, we always reflect on this. What is going on here? Uh, what is happening and the author Mark is showing us that Christ is entering Jerusalem the way a triumphant king would enter their city. So he's coming in in a way that's consistent with the way a triumphant general or someone who's been out of battle uh, would come back to that city and the people would all gather around and they would throw down these palm leaves and their cloaks so the person riding on the colt would be able to ride in. And even the choosing of the colt the way Christ did was the way the king would do it, one that had never been ridden before. And by the way, we know he's a good king because look at what he does there in verse 3. He says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here soon. See, he's not stealing it. He's going to return it after it's, been, after it's served its purpose here. So he's riding into town, and you see these things happening, all these events. And as the narrative continues, we see the reaction of the crowd. And in verse 7, it says they were throwing, they, they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, all consistent with a, a king returning home. And then in verse 9, it says they were shouting, Hosanna, which means God save us, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But one question to answer here is, who are these people that are doing this? For a long time, I thought, well, this is the crowd in Jerusalem that sees their king coming, and they're running out to greet him. But actually, that's not the case at all. 
And if you want to know who these people are, we have to go back to Mark chapter 10, verse 46. And it says, they came to Jericho, referring to Jesus and his disciples. And as Jesus and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. So Jesus has this large group of people that have been traveling with him, and this is the group that's coming to Jerusalem with him. And they're the ones shouting, Hosanna. They're the ones who are following him. They're the ones that believe this is their Messiah. This is their king. And then something tragic happens. Because, see, the people in Jerusalem, they don't get it. They don't get it at all. They should have been shouting from the Temple Mount. And yet no one is there to greet him. Notice that very obscure passage at the very end where he goes to the temple, he looks around, and he leaves. Had they understood in Jerusalem who had come, they should have been lining the streets all the way up to the temple and shouting that the king has returned to his palace. But they didn't get it. In other words, there was a lack of response to Christ. They don't get who he was they don't believe that he is the divine king. Now, they should have recognized him. And had they been in tune with the events that had been transpiring, they would have known that this was the moment foretold for thousands of years, that the king has finally come, but that's not what happened. They didn't recognize him. It kind of reminds me of this moment that I had in an airport one time. I'll never forget, I was at the San Francisco airport. Uh, we were waiting to leave. Melissa and I were there, and I was sitting three or four seats away from this guy. I didn't really recognize him. You know, at an airport, you don't ever want to sit beside somebody. You want some space. So anyway, I went, and I, I sat down, and, but I noticed other people looking at this guy a few seats down. And then I saw some people that are wanting to get their picture taken with him. And then I saw the flight attendants giving him all this, like, special treatment. I thought, well, who is this guy? So I went over, and I, said, I asked the flight attendant, I said, well, who is this guy? Because he looked kind of familiar. She said, well, that's Johnny Mathis. Now, half of this congregation may know who Johnny Mathis is. The other half may not. I won't tell you why. But I knew this guy because he was on the Muppet Show and sang with Ralph the Dog. And I remember I called my, my mom and I said, well, you'll never believe who I just met at the airport. I actually took his picture with Melissa and she said, I said, well, I just saw Johnny Mathis. Well, she was there at, at home with her sisters, and they start screaming at the top of their lungs, what did you get a picture with? And actually, I deleted the picture that I took with Melissa. It was awful. But anyway, they, they knew who he was. They were in tune with who he was. They couldn't believe I didn't know who he was. These people in Jerusalem should have known who it was that was coming into town. They were so blinded by their sin that they could not recognize the divine king whenever he came. So there's this lack of response to Christ. So we move on to this next section, which I'd like to read for you. Uh, this is uh, verses 12 through 21. You can stay seated. But it says there that now the next day, as they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. After noticing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to see if he could find any fruit on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. 
Then they came to Jerusalem. Jesus entered the temple area and began to drive out those who were selling and buying in the temple courts. He turned over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise to the temple courts. Then he began to teach them and said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. The chief priests and the experts in the law heard it and considered how they could assassinate him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed by his teaching. When evening came, Jesus said, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. We see two stories here that have been intentionally intertwined because of the fate of the fig tree, as we'll see, is going to become the fate of the temple. Now, this is a tough verse or tough passage primarily because I'm, he, he makes this pronouncement on the fig tree. And I can't help but read this and think, well, didn't you go a little hard on the fig tree? I mean, if it wasn't supposed to have figs, why did you curse it? And I have read scads of articles on this very passage. I've read articles about, a, a, there was a naturalist at the time who was a contemporary of Christ named Pliny who had written his own version of what was going on here. Some people say that, well, there's supposed to be fruit on the fig tree before it comes into bloom and different things. But the bottom line here, and this is what I take away from this passage, is that when Jesus is hungry and he expects there to be fruit, there better be fruit. And in this case, he gets to it, and there's no fruit. So what we have is a fig tree with leaves that you can see from afar, but it's not bearing any fruit. And as a result of that, Jesus curses the fig tree. And then there's a scene shift. And we find ourselves watching Jesus react to what he finds in the temple. And notice he doesn't ask anyone to leave. Uh, rather, he physically prevents the buying and the selling in the temple. This is one of the most impassioned responses we see anywhere in the New Testament of Christ. Then he speaks in verse 17. He says, he began to teach them and said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. So we see him here, he's quoting out of the Old Testament. Now the chief priests and the Israelites knew that when they were disobedient, that when they were no longer following the Lord, that his presence would leave. And here uh, in this passage, quoting from Old Testament verses, I want to look at Isaiah 56, 7. Because it says there that even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer... Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. And it's also in Jeremiah 7.11. And Jeremiah says, There has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight. Behold, I, even I, have seen it. Now, in the case of Jeremiah, the Israelites had started Baal worship. So there was this anticipation that this 
this, this incident in the New Testament is similar to what's going on in the Old. These people had chosen a different God. It may not have been Baal, but there's, word, there's this merchandise exchange going on in the temple that was never intended to happen. So the Pharisees have turned to this idol of legalism, and they're blinded by it, and they don't see the Messiah right in front of their eyes. So the temple now stands as this hollow structure. There's no prayer there. See, Jesus had chosen the Jewish people, and he wanted to draw all nations to himself through the Jews, but that's not what was going on. Instead, the Jewish people were looking to themselves. They'd become legalistic, and they were completely missing the whole point. And as a result, the temple had lost its function as a house of prayer. Now, when I was growing up, people would, if you were kind of a, a strong, virile guy, they would, you would be referred to as a stud. Now, I don't know what that's like, but that's what they would call them. <laughs> and, of course, a stud is a horse that would be used for breeding. Now, there's another condition of a horse called a gelding. And a gelding has had its ability to, to breed taken away. In essence, this temple had become a gelding Clydesdale. It was showy, it looked good, it was leafy like the fig tree was. However, it was no longer potent and it could no longer do what God had intended. The temple was a place where heaven would come down and be present in, in that body, in that structure, in a way like it wasn't anywhere else on earth. But not so now. The presence of God was leaving. And the withering of the fig tree is a harbinger, a picture of what's going to happen to that temple, which is going to be completely destroyed. It's going to be decimated in 70 AD. So they failed to recognize Christ as the Messiah, and in doing so, they certainly failed to recognize him as their authority. They witnessed his authority. They were even afraid and amazed at how the crowds were reacting to him. But in essence, because of this lack of prayer at the temple, it was going to be doomed. It was going to be destroyed. So now I want to approach this question of how then do we pray? It's a big deal. It is such a big deal. It is so essential in the life of the Christian. So how do we do it? And first of all, it starts with recognizing the authority of Christ. And this is not in your notes. But it's about first recognizing the authority of Christ. We recognize that there is nothing that he cannot subject to his own power. All through the book of Mark, he's showing people he's God because of the miracles that he's doing. He's showing his power over the wind and the waves, over sickness and death, over demons. He can subject it all to his power. He showed the powerlessness of Satan to tempt him into sin the way he does us. So it starts out with this authority of Christ. I want to share with you a, a quote from the missionary Hudson Taylor about the power of prayer. And he said this, The prayer power has never been tried to its full capacity. If we want to see divine power wrought in the place of weakness, failure, and disappointment, let us answer God's standing challenge. Call unto me, and I will answer thee. And show thee great and mighty things of which thou knowest not of. It's this un, so, so often an untapped power 
um, that we don't exercise to its full extent. So now we're going to look through the three keys, I'm going to call them three ingredients to powerful prayer. We're going to see them in verses 22 through 26. I'm going to start here with verse 22, where Jesus simply says, have faith in God. It starts with simple faith. Simple faith in the one we are addressing. If it doesn't start there, if you don't believe when you approach God in prayer that he can answer and do what you're asking him to do, then you should just stop. Because now you become this sort of double-minded, doubting person, at least in that moment. James speaks of this in James chapter 1. He says, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I was driving down this dark road one night, and I'll never forget this rabbit that popped out in the middle of the road, just got caught right in my headlights and just sort of froze there. And then he ran off the other side of the road. And I keep going. And then this rabbit jumps back on the road. And again, he gets caught in my headlights, and he jumps back off the road again. Then it happens again. The rabbit jumps on the road. Only this time he didn't make it off. There was a thump, thump, you know, as I was going along. It's sad for the rabbit. That rabbit couldn't decide what side of the road he wanted to be on. So the rabbit, the rabbit went splat. And you know what? When we are double-minded when we approach God, when we're unsure, well, I don't know if he can do it, it's the same thing. Your prayer is going to go splat. So we are double-minded. We approach God with full faith. So first of all, we approach God with this first ingredient of faith. Have faith when you pray. And then we move to Mark chapter 11, verse 24. And he says this, All things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. The emphasis I want to put here is on the all things. Now, when we read this passage, we have to remember that in this promise, there's a, there's a recognition that our petitions, those things for which we are asking God, have got to be in harmony with his will. Christ knew this when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. If we look at what Christ said uh, in Mark 14, 36, he said, Abba, Father... All things are possible for you. And then speaking of what the cross that was to come, he said, take this cup away from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. So when we pray, of course, we're praying, we're hoping to get whatever we want, but we have to recognize that in order for us to get what we want, it's got to be in harmony with God's will. Uh, to further illustrate this. I love what C.S. Lewis said in his book, Prayer Letters to Malcolm. He said, I'm not asking why our petitions are so often refused. Anyone can see in general that this must be so. In our ignorance, we ask what is not good for us or for others, or not even intrinsically possible. Or again, to grant one man's prayer involved refusing another's. There is much here which is hard for our will to accept, but nothing that is hard for our intellect to understand. You could run this 
through the Super Bowl filter if you want to. If the Super Bowl comes, there's two opposing teams. There's one group of people praying for one team. There's one group of people praying for another. They both, they both can't win. So you see that in some instances, people are praying against each other. So we trust God. When we ask for things in harmony with his will, he will grant them. So we are to pray, secondly, with freedom. In that verse, Christ said, all things bring to me. All things so whatever it may be, whatever's on your heart, when you get down on your knees and pray, this is one reason I love the Psalms so much. Because David is so brutally honest with God about how he's feeling and, and how he wants God to answer his prayers. This is how we approach the Lord. Pray out your heart. If it's your marriage, if it's someone who's sick, if it's a child that you're concerned about, bring it to God with complete freedom believing that he can work this out. So we pray with faith, we pray with freedom, and then lastly, we pray with forgiveness. We pray with forgiveness. And we get to Mark 11, verse 25. And there he says, he commands, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your sins. See, there's this link between our ability to be forgiven and to forgive. One who has accepted God's forgiveness is expected to forgive others in the same way that they've been forgiven. That's Ephesians chapter 4. There's an expectation of forgiveness. And the truth is, we've all got somebody we have to forgive. Without exception, I'm looking across at these faces, I know that someone has mishandled you somewhere along the way. They've done something. They've said something. You, or, or you did something to them that you didn't know. They came back at you so sharply that you need to forgive them for that. Or you were accused of doing something you didn't do. You've probably heard um, of a woman by the name of Corey Tenboom. I've mentioned her before. But she was put in a Nazi concentration camp along with her family. And there in Ravensbrück, her family was executed. In some way, she had to figure out how she was going to forgive these Nazis for executing her family. It was her, her father and her sister. And she said that forgiveness is like letting go of a bell rope. And if you've ever been to a country church, you know that oftentimes they'll have a, a big steeple out front, and up in that tower is a bell Attached to that bell is a long rope. And in order to get that bell swinging, first you've got to start pulling on it and pulling on it. Then the momentum builds up. And then the clapper will eventually hit the side. And it'll keep going like that. And you keep pulling the rope. But when you let go of the rope, it'll still keep ringing for a while. But eventually the momentum dies down. And the bell will stop ringing. She said it's like that with forgiveness. When you decide to forgive, the old feelings of unforgiveness may continue to assert themselves because they've got lots of momentum. But if you affirm your decision to forgive, that unforgiving spirit will begin to slow and eventually be still. She says that forgiveness is like letting go of this rope of retribution. If you want to hang on to the bitterness, you keep ringing the bell. If you want to hang on to those feelings of unforgiveness, you keep pulling the rope. You keep ringing the bell. But if you want to let it go, you can choose in that moment 
to think about something else, to do something else. When that unforgiving spirit starts to rise up in you, try your best. Put it out of your mind. Choose to do that. That is the spirit in which we are to pray. We're to forgive people because we've been forgiven. See, Christ let go of the rope a long time ago. God is not holding against us the sins that we've committed. And he's telling us to do that for others. Forgive with the same forgiveness that we've received. So the three keys here, we're to pray with faith, we're to pray with freedom, and we're to pray with forgiveness. And in closing, I wanted to talk about two phone calls that uh, my wife received. One was when her father had a heart attack, and one was when she found out that her mother had cancer. Now, in both cases, she was lifting it up to the Lord in prayer. She was praying for the best possible outcome. But in those two cases, her father ended up passing away, and her mother ended up surviving cancer. And in both those cases, she was praying with faith. She felt the freedom to bring those before God. She wasn't harboring any unforgiveness towards anyone that she was aware of. And see, that's how we are to pray, trusting God with the outcome. So we pray with faith, we pray with freedom, and we pray in this model that Christ has given us to pray. Please pray with me now. God, it is not easy to trust you with all the circumstances of our life. And God, when we come to you, it's often with a head that's flying around with different ideas. God, help us to still ourselves before you, believing in you and trusting in you, Lord, that you are all-powerful. And God, help us to remember that we can bring all things to you without exception. And God, I pray that you would help us to let go of that rope. Where there's bitterness, God, please replace it with forgiveness. And God, even if we don't want to, Lord, I pray that we would have the desire to forgive. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You will find someone standing by the door in the back with a, with a plate. This is the Sunday where we take up the elder fund. If you have some money you would like to give to that, we would deeply appreciate it. Thank you all for being here.